Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Really, I'm here to make you aware of this problem because uh, I know many of you will be using iron infusions in your general practice and you may not have heard of this problem with low phosphate levels and soft bones. So these are my disclosures. So what I'd like to really do today is give you an overview of phosphate metabolism, including a hormone you've probably never heard about, which is fibroglass uh, growth factor 23, or FGF 23. Um, the biochemical mechanisms of hypophosphatemia after intravenous iron carboxymaltose infusions, and how common is it, and are there any clinical risk factors that can guide us in sort of selecting patients to test for a low phosphate level? I'd also like to discuss how it might present in your practice and talk about ways to prevent and treat it uh, by using alternative forms of iron infusions or the active form of vitamin D, calcitriol, and phosphate supplements. So um, with the intravenous iron infusions, we know that iron deficiency is common, <clears throat> affecting more than 15% of the world's population. And these intravenous iron formulations are nanoparticles uh, composed of iron oxide hydroxides and carbohydrate. And they're being increasingly used uh, in general practice as well as specialty medicine practice. Probably the most commonly used one is ferric carboxymaltose, but there are alternatives such as ferric uh, dairy isomaltose and ferrumoxitol. So um, hypophosphatemia is, occurs when the phosphate level is below 0.8 millimoles per litre. And it occurs most commonly after the ferric carboxymaltose infusions. And nearly 50% of patients will develop a low phosphate level, whereas with the FDI infusions, only about 4% will. So this can be persistent in about 45% of people, and it can last for more than six months in 5%. And the mean duration of the hypophosphatemia is about 31 weeks. Now, it can be severe in 11%, and by severe hypophosphatemia, we mean a phosphate less than 0.35 millimoles per litre. Uh, and this is well below the normal range, as you can see there. So this has significance because it can affect the myocardial function, muscle function, and also the bones to make the bones soften and uh, fragile. So you may not know that bone is an endocrine organ and it produces hormones. And one of the hormones that's produced by bone cells, in particular osteoblasts and osteocytes, is this FGF23. And that mediates phosphate metabolism that I'll describe in the next slide. And there's also another hormone called undercarboxylated osteocalcin. And this mediates uh, energy metabolism and fat metabolism. So you may not have known that bone could actually be an endocrine organ. Now, this is the proposed mechanism of this uh, FCM-induced hypophosphatemia. So when people have iron deficiency, this predisposes to having an elevated FGF23 level. They're then given one or two iron infusions, and this further increases the level of this hormone, FGF23. 
Now that acts on the kidney and the kidney is where we convert vitamin D into the active form of vitamin D, 125-dihydroxy-D. And the FGF23 uh, inhibits that. It also inhibits the sodium phosphate uh, transporter uh, activity so that the phosphate goes out in the urine. And because we know that the 125-dihydroxy vitamin D level is low, that means that calcium and phosphate absorption from the intestine is also reduced. And there's compensatory increases in parathyroid hormone. So what we see is an increase in phosphate excretion in the urine, and that leads to a low phosphate level in the blood. So this is why I like endocrinology. You've got things going up and things going down, and they're all connected. So that's why endocrinology is very interesting. But what we can see are the changes, and, and this is two infusions of the FCM, one at day one and the next at day seven. And we can see this progressive uh, rapid increase in the FGF23 hormone level, as shown there. There's also an, uh, an increase in the phosphate excretion in the urine, and there's concomitant decreases in the 125D level as well as the phosphate level. Now, as a consequence, we, we see that there's an elevation in the PTH level, and we also get a decrease in the serum calcium level. And uh, the alkaline phosphatase level can also go up in the blood because this is uh, uh, what the osteoblasts do in response uh, to the higher PTH levels. So you get this complicated picture of these changes, uh, but the most important one is the low phosphate level. So how common is it and what sort of conditions do we see this in? Well, if we think about the people that need recurrent um, iron infusions, uh, it's those with anemia. So people with gynecological blood, lo uh, blood loss or gastrointestinal blood loss uh, can also all um, develop this condition more commonly. And the other group are people with hematological causes for anemia that need recurrent iron infusions. So iron deficiency anemia or other anemias. So these are the three groups where it's most commonly seen. And I'm sure you've got people in your practice who would fit into these um, groupings. So the other thing is that there is an overlap of the clinical features associated with iron deficiency and those associated with a low phosphate level. So these features of iron deficiency will be very common to you. Uh, they include angular colitis and thinning of the hair, um, fatigue, and uh, nail changes, and, and these are what we see. But you can also get fatigue and muscle aches and pains in osteomalacia, so there's some overlap there. You can get pain over the ribs and over the pelvis at the site of these, uh, what we call, um, looser zones or stress fractures over the bones due to the osteomalacia. And then the muscles are also affected, so people have difficulty rising out of a chair due to this proximal myopathy associated with osteomalacia. And this is one of the tests we, we do to test for the presence of a proximal myopathy, getting people to get up out of a chair or to squat down on the ground and then get up again. So these are some of the changes. If we organize some biochemical tests, this is what the pattern we would see. Uh, we'd see a low pretreatment hemoglobin because that's why they're having the iron infusion. But the most striking thing is the reduction in the phosphate level. 
and then the increase in the fractional excretion of phosphate in the urine, a reduction in the calcium level, normal vitamin D levels, but a low level of the active form of vitamin D, 125D, an elevation in the PTH level, and an elevation in the alkaline phosphatase level. So this is the pattern we get uh, in the biochemical tests for osteomalacia. Now, um, they've looked at the changes in these biochemical parameters from baseline to day 35 after one of these FCM infusions. And the groupings here are shown in mild, moderate, and severe um, hypophosphatemia. And what they found was that a lower active form of vitamin D level and a phosphate level on day seven were independent predictors for persistent hypophosphatemia. So if somebody gets a very low phosphate just a week after the first infusion, that means that they're probably going to have a low phosphate for the next uh, six or seven months. So that's maybe a good time to measure it. So these are some of the fractures that we see. This is looking at a, uh, an X-ray of uh, the foot and looking at the metatarsal bones. And you get these uh, stress fractures in the cortex of the metatarsal bone. And that's what we call a looser zone. That's the term for it in osteomalacia. And this can also occur in the proximal femur. And it's usually on the medial uh, aspect of the uh, cortex of the proximal femur where you get these looser zones at areas of stress when you're sort of moving around. But the, uh, the gold standard for really diagnosing osteomalacia is to take a bit of the iliac crest and then to look at it under the microscope. And then what we see is that you get this unmineralized bone matrix called osteoid. You get a lot of osteoid and it's not properly mineralized. So that's how we make the diagnosis of osteomalacia using the gold standard of a bone biopsy. But really we hardly ever do bone biopsies now. And what we rely on are really the biochemical features in these x-ray findings instead. So, um, the other thing to know that is bone density is not very helpful. So if we did a bone density test in one of these patients with osteomalacia, the bone density might be normal or just a little bit low. So we can't make the diagnosis of osteomalacia based on a bone density test. So how do we manage the condition? Well, I think if you've got some patients who are receiving multiple intravenous iron infusions and they're feeling tired, they're not getting better after the iron infusion, or they develop um, pain or muscular weakness, particularly pain um, over the shoulders, uh, the hips, and maybe ribs, um, then you should measure the serum phosphate. And you could delay any further intravenous iron infusions or switch to the alternate uh, um, iron formulations available, such as FDI. You could also measure the fractional excretion of phosphate or the TMP uh, EGFR, which we measure as a two-hour urine collection with a, a blood measurement of phosphate in the middle. But that's a bit complicated and it probably isn't something that a GP really wants to do. Um, and then we could also measure the phosphate, calcium, alkaline phosphatase level, PTH, 25D and 125D. And patients with bone pain can go undergo skeletal imaging, so you'd start off with an X-ray, but you could also do a bone scan. And often in these patients with osteomalacia, you get multiple hot spots in the ribs um, and the appendicular skeleton. 
So one of the patients who had this condition after an iron infusion for a haematological cause had been investigated and was told that they had metastatic cancer. And uh, actually, you know, she was only about 38 and had gone on to have a bone a biopsy through one of these uh, hot spots on her bone scan, and that was proven to be osteomalacia. So she had unnecessary stress caused um, by the oncologist not recognizing uh, that this problem uh, could be caused by the iron infusions and, and osteomalacia. So the treatment really is to treat the secondary hyperparathyroidism with the active form of vitamin D calcitriol. And usually uh, one or two capsules a day is all that's required. Um, phosphate supplements sometimes can be used, but it should be noted that they can increase the urine phosphate excretion further. And there is a monoclonal antibody directed against the FGF23 level and, um, hormone, and we use this in the treatment of a congenital form of rickets called X-linked hypophosphatemic rickets. It's revolutionized the treatment of that condition in young people, but unfortunately, this would be off-label use and expensive, so we wouldn't use it uh, for these patients. And we just correct routine vitamin D deficiency with cholecalciferol or vitamin D3. So um, I hope that was interesting to learn about this condition that you've probably never thought about. You've learned about a new hormone, FGF23, that you probably didn't know about. And you've learned about why endocrinologists get excited about these things. So that's all been good. Um, so hypophosphatemia is a common medical problem after administration of ferric carboxymaltose or FCM infusions for iron deficiency. It's more common when there are repeated infusions, particularly more than two. And screening for hypophosphatemia isn't required in every patient having an iron infusion. But if you do have a patient with ongoing or worsening fatigue who has muscular weakness or muscle pain or bone pain, you need to measure their phosphate level. And uh, patients with bone pain should also have x-rays and other bone imaging uh, modalities, such as a bone scan. And if you have a patient like this, you should delay further intravenous iron doses and, or switch to an alternate um, iron infusion. And you can treat these patients with calcitriol and phosphate supplements, if severe, or refer to a bone specialist. And I'm sure most of you would feel more comfortable in referring a patient like this to a specialist and that would be perfectly fine. So just before I, I finish, I just want to let you know about a Healthy Bones Australia initiative, uh, formerly Osteoporosis Australia. So we've been lucky enough to get a $3 million MRFF grant and we need to work with GPs and the project is to have an automated way of detecting fractures in general practice using software and uh, also a research nurse who would come into GP practices to interrogate the medical records for patients who might have a fragility fracture and hadn't been investigated or treated with osteoporosis. So um, over the next couple of years, we're going to recruit 50 general practices from around Australia. So if you're interested in joining, uh, please contact Healthy Bones Australia. Um, but I'd just like to thank you for listening and to show you uh, a picture of where I work and my research team at Monash University. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us. 
We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.